Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Rohan Shah is a research scientist at DeepMind and the editor and main contributor of the Alignment Newsletter. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rohan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Robin. Let's get started with um, how do you like to describe your area of interest? On my website, the thing that I say is that I'm interested in sort of the long-term trajectory of AI because it seems like AI is becoming more and more capable over time with many people thinking that someday we are going to get to artificial general intelligence or AGI uh, where AI systems will be able to replace humans at most economically valuable tasks and that just seems like such an important event in the history of humanity uh, it seems like it would radically transform the world. And so it seems very important to both important and interesting to understand what is going to happen and to see how we can make that important stuff happen better so that we get good outcomes instead of bad outcomes. That's a sort of very general uh, statement, but I would say that that's a pretty big area of interest for me. And then I often spend most of my time on a particular sub-question within that, uh, which is, what are the chances that these AGI systems will be misaligned with humanity in the sense that they will want something other than what uh, they will want to do things other than what humans want them to do? So A, what is the risk of that? How can it arise? And B, how can we prevent that problem from happening? Cool. Okay. So we're going to talk uh, about some of this in more general terms later on. And but first, let's let's get a little more specific about some of your recent papers. First, we have in the Mine RL Basalt Competition on Learning from Human Feedback. Mm -hmm. And that was benchmarked for agents that solve almost lifelike tasks. So, I gather this is based on the Mine RL, uh, Minecraft-based RL environment. We saw some competitions on using that before, but here you're doing something uh, different with the Mine RL. Can you tell us about Basalt and what's the idea here? So, I think the basic idea is that a reward function, which is a typical tool that you use in reinforcement learning, I'm sure your list, I expect your listeners probably know about that. A reward function, if you have to write it down by hand, is actually a pretty not great way of specifying what you want an AI system to do. Like reinforcement learning treats the reward function as a specification of exactly what the optimal behavior is to do in every possible circumstance that could possibly arise. When you wrote out that reward function, did you think of every possible situation that could ever possibly arise and check whether your reward function was specifying the correct behavior in that situation? No, you did not do that. And so we already have lots and lots of examples of cases where people like tried to write, a re write down the reward function that they thought would lead to good behavior, and they actually ran reinforcement learning or some other optimization algorithm with, uh, with that reward function, and the AI found some totally unexpected solution that did get high reward, but didn't do what the designer wanted it to do. And so this motivates the question of like, all right, how can we specify what we want the agent to do without using handwritten reward functions? The general class of approaches that has been developed in response to this is uh, what I call learning from human feedback, or LFHF. The idea here is that you, you consider some possible situations where the AI could do things, and then you like 
ask a human, hey, in these particular situations, what should the AI system do? So you're making more local queries um, and spe uh, local specifications rather than having to reason about every possible circumstance that can ever arise. And then given all of this, this like, uh, given a large data set of human feedback on various situations, uh, you can then train an, uh, train an agent to meet that specification as best as it can. So people have been developing these techniques and includes things like imitation learning, where you learn from human demonstrations of how to do the task, or learning from comparisons where humans compare, uh, look at videos of two agent, uh, two videos of agent behavior and then say, you know, the left one is better than the right one. Or it includes corrections where uh, the agent does something and humans like at this point you should have like taken this other action instead that would have been better these are all ways that you can use human uh human feedback to train an agent to do the do what you want but so people have developed a lot of algorithms like this but the evaluation of them is kind of ad hoc uh, people just sort of make up some uh new environment to test their method on uh they don't really compare on any like on on a standard benchmark that everyone is using. So the big idea with Basalt was to, um, was to change that to actually make a benchmark that could reasonably fairly compare all of these, uh, all of these different approaches. So we like, we wanted it to mimic the real world situation as much as possible. In the real world situation, you just have like some notion in your head of what task you want your AI system to do. And then you have to, you have to take a learning from human feedback algorithm and give it the appropriate feedback. So similarly, in this benchmark, we instantiate the agent in a Minecraft world. And then we just tell the designer, hey, you've got to train your agent to say, make a waterfall. That's one of our tasks, uh, and then take a picture of it. So we just tell the designers, you have to do this. So now the designer has in their head, a like notion of what the agent is supposed to do, but there's no formal specification, no reward function, nothing like that. So they can then do whatever they want. They can write down a reward function by hand if that seems like an approach they want to do. They can use demonstrations, they can use preferences, they can use corrections, they can do active learning and so on. Uh, but their job is to like make an agent that actually does the task. Ideally, they want to maximize uh, performance and minimize costs, both in terms of compute and in terms of how much human feedback it takes to train the agent. So I watched uh, the presentations of the top two solutions and it seemed like they showed very different approaches. Uh, the first one, Kairos, I would say is seemed like a lot of hand engineering. I think they used 80,000 plus labeled images and built some very specific components for this. They kind of decomposed the problem, which I think is a very sensible thing to do. But then also uh, the second one was Obsidian. They produced this inverse Q-learning method, uh, a new method, which has seemed like a more general theoretical solution. I just wondered if you have any comments on the different types of solutions that came out of this. Do the, are those kind of two main classes that you saw or did any classes of solutions surprise you? Yeah, I think that's basically right. I don't think they were particularly surprising in that it was, we spent a lot of time making sure that the tasks couldn't trivially be solved by just doing um, hand engineering a like classical program. So even even the top team did rely on a behavior cloned navigation policy uh, that used a neural network. But it is true they then did a bunch of engineering on top of that, which I think is, according to me, is just a benefit of this set up, it shows you like, hey, if you're just actually trying to get good performance, do you train a neural network end to end or do you put in uh, or or do you put in domain knowledge 
and how much domain knowledge do you put in and uh, how, how, how do you do it? And it turns out that in this particular case, the domain knowledge, well, they did end up getting first, but uh, Team Obsidian was quite close behind. So I would say that the two approaches were actually pretty comparable. And I do agree that I would say one is more of an engineering-y solution and the other one is more of a researchy solution. So it seems to me like the goals here were things that could be modeled and learned. Like it seems feasible to learn the concept or to train a network to learn the concept of looking at a waterfall if they had enough labels. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what some contestants did. But do you have any comments on if we were to, to want goals that are harder to model than these things? I, I'm, I was trying to think of examples that came up with like irony or dance choreography scoring. Like how would you even begin to, to model those things? Do we have to just continue improving our modeling toolkit so that we can make models of these uh, reward functions? Or is there some other strategy? Uh, it depends exactly what you mean by improving the modeling toolkit. But basically, I think the answer is yes. But, you know, the way that we can improve our modeling toolkit, it may not look like explicit modeling. So, for example, for Irony, I think you could probably get a decent, yeah, well, maybe not, but uh, it's plausible that you could get a decent uh, reward model out of a large language model that, like, does in fact have the concept of iron, irony. Um, if I remember correctly, large language models are not actually that great at humor, so I'm not sure if they have the concept of irony. But I wouldn't be surprised that if further scaling did in fact give them a concept of irony such that we could use, uh, we could then use them to have rewards that involve irony. And I think that's the same sort of thing as like waterfall. Like I agree that we can learn the concept of a waterfall. It's not a trivial concept. If you asked me to program it by hand, I would have no idea. Like the only input, yeah, you get pixels as an input. If you're like, here's a rectangle of pixels, please write a program that detects the waterfall in there. I'm like, oh God, that sounds really difficult. I don't know how to do it. But we can, if we apply machine learning, then like turns out that we can recognize these sorts of concepts. Uh, and similarly, I think it's not going to be like, I, I definitely couldn't write a program uh, directly that can recognize irony. But if you do machine learn, if you use machine learning to model all the text on the internet, uh, the resulting model does in fact have a concept of irony that you can then try to use in your reward functions. And then there's a Twitter thread related to disinformation. And I shared a line from your paper where you said, learning from human feedback offers the alternative of training recommender systems to promote content that humans would predict would improve the user's well-being. And I thought that was a really cool insight. Is that something you're interested in pursuing or you you see that uh, being a thing? I don't know whether or not it is actually feasible currently. Uh, one thing that needs to be true of recommender systems is they need to be cheap to run because they are being run so, so many times every day. I don't actually know this for, for a fact. I haven't actually done any Fermi estimates. But my guess would be that if you tried to actually run GPT-3 on, say, um, Facebook posts in order to then, uh, to then rank them, I think that would just be, that would probably be prohibitively expensive for Facebook. So there's a question of like, can you get a model that actually makes reasonable predictions about the user's well-being that can also be run cheaply enough that it's not a huge uh, expensive cost to whoever is implementing the recommendation system and also 
does it take a like sufficiently small amount of human feedback that you aren't bottlenecked on cost uh, from from the humans providing the feedback? And also, do we have algorithms that are good enough to uh, train recommender systems this way? I think the answer is plausibly yes to all of these. Uh, I haven't. It's just that I haven't actually checked myself, nor have I even like tried to do any feasibility studies. I think the the line that you're quoting was more about like, okay, why do this research at all? And I'm like. Well, someday in the future, this should be possible. And I stick by that. Like someday in the future, things will become significantly cheaper. Learning from human feedback algorithms will be a lot better and so on. And then like it will just totally make sense to do recommender systems trained with human feedback, unless we found something even better by then. It's just not obvious to me that it is the right choice currently. I look forward to that. And uh, uh, I'm really concerned, like many people are, about the disinformation and the divisiveness uh, of social media. So that sounds great. I think everyone's used to very cheap reward functions pretty much across the board. So I guess what you're kind of pointing to with these reward functions is potentially more expensive to evaluate reward functions, which is maybe hasn't been a common thing up till now. Like both more expensive reward functions and also the model that you train with that reward function might be might still be very expensive to do inference with. Presumably recommender systems right now are like compute these uh you know run a few linear time algorithms on the post in order to like compute it like a hundred or a hundred thousand features then do a dot product with a hundred thousand weights see which and then like rank things in order by by those numbers and that's like you know maybe a million flops or something which is a tiny tiny number of flops whereas like a forward pass to gpt3 is more is several hundred billion flops uh so that's a like uh, 10 to the 5x increase in the amount of computation you have to do. Uh, actually, no, that's one forward pass through GPT-3, but there are many words in a, in a Facebook post. So multiply the 10 to the 5 by the number of words in the Facebook post. Uh, and now we're at like maybe more like 10 to the 7 times cost increase just to do inference, even assuming you, were, you had successfully trained a model that could do recommendations. And in the end result, maybe lowering engagement for the benefit of less divisive content, which is maybe not in the yes. interest of the, of the social media companies in the first place. Yeah, there's also a question of, I agree, the, whether the companies will want to do this. But I think if we, I don't know, if we like showed that this was feasible, uh, that would give regulator is a much more uh, like I think a common problem with regulation is that you don't know what to regulate because there's no alternative on the table for what people are already doing and if we were to come to them and and say look there's this learning from human feedback approach we've like calculated it out this should this should only increase cost by 2x or maybe uh, uh yeah this should maybe this is like just the same amount of cost um, and it shouldn't be too hard for companies to actually train such a model. They've already got all the infrastructure. It should barely be like, I don't know, $100,000 to train the model once. And then they, the, if you like lay out that case, then I think it's much, I would hope at least, that it would be a lot easier for the regulators to be like, yes, everyone, you must train your recommender systems to be optimizing for what humans would predict is good as opposed to whatever you're doing right now. So that could really change the game. And then the bots or the divisive posters are now trying to game that that new reward function and they'll probably find some different strategies. <laughs> yeah, you might you might imagine that you have to like keep retraining in order to uh, deal with new strategies that are uh, that people are finding in response to you. Like we can't do this. 
I don't have any special information about that uh, on this from working at Google, but I'm told that Google is actually like pretty good at defeating uh, defeating spammers, for example. Like, in fact, my Gmail spam filter works quite well, as far as I can tell, uh, despite the fact that spammers are uh, constantly trying to evade it. And hopefully we could do the same thing here. Cool. Okay, let's move on to your next paper, Preferences Implicit in the State of the World. I understand this paper is closely related to your dissertation. We'll link to your dissertation in the show notes as well. I'm just going to read a quote, and I love how you distilled this. The key insight, you said, the key insight of this paper is that when a robot is deployed in an environment that humans have been acting in, the state of the environment is already optimized for what humans want. Can you um, tell us the general idea here and 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 what do you mean by that statement? Maybe like put yourself in the position of a robot or an AI system that knows nothing about the world. Uh, maybe it like, or sorry, like it knows the laws of physics or something. It knows that like there's gravity. It knows that like there are solids, liquids, and gases. Liquids uh, tend to, you know, take the shape of the container that they're in, stuff like that. Uh, but it doesn't know anything about humans. Or maybe like, you know, it was... It was, we imagine that it's sort of like off in other parts of the solar system or whatever and hasn't really seen Earth. And then it like comes to Earth and it's like, whoa, Earth has these like super regular structures. There's like these like very uh, cuboidal um, structures with glass panes at regular intervals um, that often seem to have lights inside of them, even though even at night when there isn't light outside of, uh, outside of them. This is kind of shocking. You you wouldn't expect this from a random configuration of atoms um, or something like that. Like there is some sense in which the order of the world that that we humans have imposed upon it is like extremely surprising um, if you don't know about humans already being there and what they want. So then you can imagine uh, asking your AI system, "Hey, you see a lot of order here. Uh, can you like figure out an explanation for why this order is there?" Um, perhaps, it, uh, and then you like, and maybe you get, and then you give it the hint of like, look, it's, we're going to give you the hint that it was created by somebody optimizing the world. What sort of things might they have been optimizing for? And then you like, you know, you look around, you see that like, oh, liquids, they tend to be in these like glasses. It would be really easy to tip over the glasses and have all the liquids spill out, but like that mostly doesn't happen. So people must want to have their liquids in glasses and probably I shouldn't knock it over vases they're like kind of fragile you could like easily just like move them a little bit to the to the left or right and they would like fall down and break um and once they're broken you can then reassemble them but nonetheless they're still not broken so like probably someone like actively doesn't want them to break and is leaving them on the table yeah so really i would say that the the idea here is the order in the world did not just happen by random chance it happened because of human optimization. And so from looking at the order of the world, you can figure out what the humans were optimizing for. Yeah, that's the basic idea underlying the paper. So there's some kind of relationship here to inverse reinforcement learning where we're trying to recover the reward function uh, mm -hmm. from, from observing an agent's behavior. But here you're not observing the agent's behavior, right? So it's not quite inverse RL. What, how would you describe the relationship between what you're doing here and uh, standard inverse RL? Yeah, so in terms of the formalism, um, inverse RL sa says that you observe the human's behavior over time. So that's a sequence of states and actions that the human took within those states. Whereas we're just saying, na, na, na. 
we're not watching the human's behavior. We're just going to see only the, the state, the current state. That's the only thing that we see. And so you can think of this in the framework of inverse reinforcement learning. You can think of this as the either the final state of the trajectory or a state sampled from the stationary distribution from an uh, infinitely long trajectory. Uh, either of those would be reasonable to do. But you're only observing that one thing instead of observing the entire state action history, um, starting from a random initialization of the world. But other than that, you just make that one change and then you run through all the same math and you get a slightly different algorithm. And that's basically what we uh, did to, to make this paper. So with this approach, I guess potentially you're opening up a huge amount of kind of unsupervised learning just from observing what's happening. And you can kind of it, almost do it instant in terms of observation, right? You don't have to watch billions of humans for thousands of years. Yep, that's right. Um, it does require that your AI system knows like the laws of physics, or as we would call it in RL, the transition dynamics. Or, well, it needs to either know that or have some source of data from which it can learn that. Because if, you're just, if you just look at the state of the world and you have no idea what the laws of physics are or how, how things work at all. You're not going to be able to figure out how it was optimized into the state. Like if you want to infer that humans don't want their vases to be broken, it's an important fact in order to infer that, that if a vase is broken, it's very hard to put it back together. And that is a fact about the transition dynamics, which we assume by fiat that the, that the agent knows. But yes, if you had a enough data such that self-supervised learning could teach the agent a bunch about dynamics and also then and then like also the agent could go about go around looking at the state of the world in theory it could then uh infer a lot about what humans care about so i very clearly remember meeting you at neurip's uh 2018 deep RL workshop in montreal the poster session and i remember your poster on this um and it, you showed a dining room that was all nicely arranged and uh and, and you were saying how a robot could learn from how things things are arranged and and I, I just want to say, I'll say this publicly, I didn't understand uh, at that point what, what you meant or why that could be important. Um, and it was so different. Your angle was just so different than everything else that was being presented um, that day. And I really didn't get it. So I, I, I and I'll own that. Uh, it, was, it was my loss. And uh, so thanks for your patience. It only took me three and a half years or something to, to come around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, I didn't communicate it clearly. I suppose. I don't think it was, no, I don't um, think it was at all your, on you. Um, but I, I, maybe I just lack the background to see why I like to understand. Um, let, let me, let me put it this way. Like how often do you find people who have some technical understanding of AI, but still maybe don't appreciate, uh, some of this line of work, including alignment and things like that? Is that a common thing? I think that's a reasonably common. And what do you attribute that to? Like, what's going on there? And, and is that changing at all? Or, or I think that's pretty interesting. I don't think that these people would say that, like, oh, this is a boring paper and, or, or this is a, an incompetent paper. I think they would say, yes, the person who wrote this paper is, in fact, has, in fact, done something impressive by the standards of, like, was it, like, you know, did you need to be intelligent and, like, do good math in order to do this? I think they are more likely to say something like, okay, but so what? And that's not entirely unfair. Like, you know, it was the DeepRL workshop. 
And here I am talking about like, oh yes, imagine that you like know all the dynamics and also you're like only getting to look at the state of the world. Uh, and then you like think about how vases can be broken, but then they can't be put back together. And voila, you learn that humans don't like to break vases. This is just such, so different from all of the things that RL usually focuses on, right? Like it doesn't have any of the buzzwords. There's no like, you know, deep learning. There's no exploration. There's no, um, uh, there's no catastrophic forgetting, no nothing like that. And to be clear, all of those seem like important things to focus on. And I think many of the people who were at that workshop were focusing on those and are doing good work on them. Uh, and I'm just doing something completely different. That's like not all that interesting to them because they want to work on reinforcement learning. I think they're making a mistake in the sense that like AI alignment is important and more people should work on it. But I don't think they're making a mistake in that they're probably correct about what does and doesn't interest them. Okay, just so I'm clear, I was not critiquing your math or the value of anything you were doing. It was just my ability to understand the the importance oh, yeah. of, of this type of work. And uh, Yeah, I didn't think you were. Yeah. Okay, thanks. So I will say that that day when I first encountered your your poster, I was really hung up on edge cases. Uh, like, um, you know, there's in the world, the robot might observe there's hunger and there's traffic accidents. And there's things that things like, like not everything is perfect. And we don't want the robot to replicate all these all these uh, flaws in the world. Or in the dining room, there might be, you know, dirty dishes or something. And so the world is, is clearly not exactly how we want it to be. So how how is that? Is that an issue, or is that is that uh, is that not an issue, or is that just not the point of this? Uh, not not addressed here. It depends a little bit. I think in many cases it's not an issue if you imagine that the robot somehow sees the entire world. Um, so, for example, you mentioned hunger. Uh, I think the robot would notice that we do, in fact, spend a lot of effort making sure that at least large number of people don't go hungry, like. We've built these giant vehicles, both trucks and cargo ships and so on, that move food around in a way that seems at least somewhat optimized to get food to people who like that food and want to eat it. So there's lots of effort being put into it. There's not like the maximal amount of effort being put into it, which I think reflects the fact that there are things that we care about other than food. So, so I do think it would be like, all right, humans definitely care about having food. I think it might then, like, if you, if you use the assumption that we have in the paper, which is that humans are, the humans are noisily rational, then it might conclude things like, ah, yeah, yes, Western countries care about getting food to, uh, Western, Western citizens, or to the citizens of their country. And they care a little bit about uh, other people having food, but like not that much. It's like a small portion of their uh, government's aid budget. So like there's a positive weight on there, a fairly small weight. And that seems like maybe not the thing that we wanted to learn. But like also I think it is in some sense an accurate reflection of what Western countries care about if you go by their actions rather than what they say. Cool. Okay. So I, uh, I'm going to move on to benefits of assistance over reward learning. And this one was absolutely fascinating to me. Actually mind blowing. I highly recommend people read all of these, but, but definitely I can point to this one as um, something surprising to me. So that was you as the first author. And uh, can you share what is the, what's the general idea uh, of this paper, uh, Rohan? I should say that this general idea was not novel to this paper. It's been proposed previously 
I'm not going to remember the paper, but it's by Fern et al. It's like towards a decision theoretic model of assistance or something like that. Um, and then there's also cooperative inverse reinforcement learning from Chai, where I did my PhD. The idea with this paper was just to take that the, the models that had already been proposed in these papers and explain why they were so nice, why, why I was like particularly keen on these models as opposed to um, other things that the field could be doing. So the idea here is that generally we want to build AI systems that help us do stuff. And you could imagine two different ways that this could be done. Uh, first, you could imagine a system that has two separate modules. One module is doing, is trying to figure out what the humans want or, or what the humans want the AI system to do. And the other module is then is trying to then do the things that the first module said the people wanted it to do. And that's kind of like the um, when we talked about learning from human feedback earlier on and modeling reward functions. Is that what, what that would be? Exactly. Um, yes. I think that is often what that that's often what people are thinking about. I would make a dif distinction between how you train the AI system and what the AI system is doing. This paper, I would say, is more about what the AI system is doing Whereas the learning from human feedback stuff is more about um, how you train the system. Yeah, so I, in the what the AI system is doing framework, I would call this uh, value learning or reward learning. And then the alternative is assistance. And so although there's like some surface similarities between learning from human feedback and reward learning, it is totally possible to use learning from human feedback algorithms to train an AI system then acts as though that then acts as though it is in the uh, it is in the assistance paradigm it is also possible to use learning from human feedback approaches to train an AI system. Then acts as though that then acts as though it is a in the reward learning paradigm. So that's one distinction to make. To recap, the value learning or reward learning uh, side of the two two models is two separate modules. One that like figures out what the humans want and the other that then acts to optimize those values. And the other side, which I, which we might call assistance, is where you still have both of those functions, but they're up combined into a single module. And the way that you do this is you have the AI system posit that there is some true unknown reward function theta. Only the human, the human who is a part of the environment, uh, knows this theta. And their behavior depends on what the theta actually is. And so now the agent just has to act in the end in order to maximize theta, but it doesn't know theta. So it has to like look at how the human is behaving within the environment in order to like make some inferences about what theta probably is. Uh, and then as it gets more and more information about theta, that allows it to take more and more like uh, actions in order to optimize theta. But fundamentally, this like uh, learning about theta is an instrumental action that the agent predicts would be useful for helping it to better optimize theta in the future. So uh, if I understand correctly, you're saying assistance is superior because it can the agent can reason about how to improve its model of, of what the human wants? Or how do you describe why, why it's, you, you get all these benefits from assistance? Yeah, I think the benefits come more from the fact that these two functions are integrated. There's the value learning, uh, the reward learning or value learning and the control. So like acting to optimize the value learning. So we can think of these two functions. In assistance, they're merged into a single module that does like nice, good Bayesian reasoning about all of it. 
Whereas in the value learning paradigm, they're separated. And it's this integration that provides the benefits. You can make plans, which is generally the domain of control. But those plans can then depend on uh, the agent believing that in the future, it's going to learn some more things about the reward function theta, which would normally be the domain of value learning. So that's an example where control is uh, using information future information about value learning in order to make its plans. Whereas when those two modules are separated, you can't do that. Um, and so like one example that we have in the paper is you is like you imagine that uh, you've got a robot uh, who is who has to cook dinner for Alice. Alice is currently well not cook dinner, bake a pie for Alice. Um, Alice is currently at the office, so the robot can't talk to her. And Unfortunately, the robot doesn't know what kind of pie she wants. Maybe apple, blueberry, or cherry. But like, the robot could guess, but its guess is not that likely to be correct. Uh, however, it turns out that you know the in, the steps to make the pie crust are the same for all three pies. So an assistive robot can reason, "Hey, uh, my plan is first make the pie crust, then wait for Alice to get home." then ask her what filling she wants, then put the filling in. And that entire plan consists of both taking actions in the environment, like making the crust and fill, putting in the filling, and also includes things like learn more about data by asking Alice a question. Um, and so it's like integrating all of these into a single plan, whereas that plan cannot be expressed in the value learning paradigm. Mm, the query as an action in the action yep. space. So I, um, I really like the... Uh, you laid out some levels of task complexity, and I'm just going to go through them really briefly. You mentioned traditional CS is uh, in giving instructions to a computer on how to perform a task, and then using AI or ML for simpler tasks would be specifying what the task is, um, and the machine figures out how to do it. I guess that's standard RL formulation. Mm -hmm. And then I, the, for harder tasks, Specifying the task is difficult, so the agent can learn may may learn a reward function from human feedback, um, and then and then and then you mentioned assistance paradigm as as the next level where the human is part of the environment has latent goals that the robot does not know. Yep. How do you see this ladder? Like, does this describe? Is this a universal um, classification scheme? Is, is there are we done? Is that the highest level? That's a good question. I. Haven't really thought about it before. You can imagine a different version of the highest level, which is like here we've talked about the assistance framing where you're like, there is some objective, but you have to infer it from human feedback. There's a different version that is more in line with the way things are going uh, with deep learning right now, which is more like, Specifying the task is difficult, so we're only going to like evaluate behaviors that the AI agent shows, and maybe like also try to find some hypothetical behaviors and evaluate those as well. Uh, so that's a different way that you could talk about this highest level, uh, where you're like evaluating specific behaviors rather than trying to specify the task across all possible behaviors. And then maybe that would have to be the highest level. I don't know, you could just keep inventing new kinds of hum human feedback inputs. Uh, and maybe those could be thought of as higher levels beyond that as well. Um, so then I'm, one detail I mentioned, I, I, I saw in the paper, you mentioned uh, two-phase communicative assistance is equivalent to reward learning. 
And I, I puzzled over that line and I, I couldn't really quite uh, understand what you meant. Can you say a little bit more about that? What does that mean? And how do you conclude that they're, they're, those two things are equivalent? Yeah. So there are a fair number of definitions here. I won't, maybe I won't go through all of it, but just uh, for so that listeners know, we had definition, we had formal definitions of like what counts as assistance and what counts as reward learning. Uh, in the reward learning se- uh, case, we ima- we like imagined it as first you have a system that like asks the human questions or actually it doesn't have to ask the human questions but first we have a system that like interacts with the human somehow and like develops a guess of what the reward function is and then uh that guess of what the reward function is which could be a distribution over rewards is passed on uh to a system that then acts to maximize the expected value of the uh, sorry, the expected reward according to that distribution over rewards. Okay, yeah. So once it's done its communication, it's learned a reward. And in phase two, it's not. It doesn't have a query as action at that point. That's that right. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Um, and so then this, you know, two phase is the, the two phase communicative assistance. The two phase and the communicative parts both have technical definitions, but they roughly mean exactly what you would expect them to mean in order to make this true. Uh, so you uh, mentioned three benefits of using assistance, uh, this assistance paradigm. Can you um, briefly explain what those those benefits are? The first one, which I already talked about, um, is plans conditional on future feedback. So this is the example where the robot can make a plan that says, hey, first I'll make the pie crust, then I'll wait for Alice to get back from the office, then I'll ask her what filling she wants, then I'll put in the appropriate filling. So there, there the plan was conditional on the answer that Alice was going to give in the future that the robot predicted she would give, but like couldn't actually ask the question now. So that's one thing that uh, can be done in the assistance paradigm, but not in the um, value learning or reward learning paradigm. Uh, a second one is what we call relevance of where active learning. Uh, so active learning is the idea that instead of the human passively giving the robot, sorry, instead of the human giving a bunch of information to the robot and the robot passively taking it and using it to update its estimate of data, the robot actively asks the human que- human questions that seem most relevant to updating its understanding of the reward data. And then the human answers those questions. So that's active learning. That can be done in both paradigms. The thing that assistants can do is to have the robot only ask questions that are actually relevant for the plans it's going to have in the future. So you, to, to make this point, I might, you might imagine that like, you know, you get a household robot and your household robot's booting up. And if it was in the reward learning paradigm, it has to like figure out data right now. And so it's like, all right, do you tend to like, uh, at what time do you, do you tend to prefer dinner um, so I can cook that for you? And that's like a pretty reasonable question. And you're like, yeah, I usually eat around um, 7 p.m. Uh, and it's got a few more questions like this. And later on, it's like, well, if you ever wanted to paint your house, what color should we paint it? And you're like, kind of like, ah, blue, I guess. But like, why are you asking me this? And then it's like, if aliens come and invade from Mars, 
where would what would be your preference of place to hide in hide in and you're like why why are you asking me this but the thing is like all of these questions are in fact relevant for for the reward function theta the reason that you don't that like if this were a human instead of a robot the reason they went to ask these questions is because the situations to which they're relevant probably don't come up but in order to like make that prediction you need to be talking more to the control uh, submodule, uh, the control module, which is like a thing that reward learning paradigm doesn't do. The control submodule is the one that's like, all right, we're going to take, we're probably going to take these sorts of actions. It's going to lead to this kind of future. And so like, you know, probably aliens from Mars aren't ever going to be relevant. So if, if you have this like one unified system, uh, then it can be like, well, okay, I know that like aliens from Mars are probably not going to show up uh, anytime in the near future. And I don't need to ask about those preferences right now. If they, do, if I do find out that aliens from Mars are likely to land uh, soon, then I will ask that question, but I can leave that to later and not bother um, Alice until that actually happens. Um, so that's the second one. And then the final one is that, you know, so far I've been talking about cases where the robot is learning by asking the human questions and the human just like gives answers that are informative about the reward function theta. Uh, the third one is that, you know, you don't have to ask the human questions. You can also learn from their behavior just directly while they are going about their day and optimizing their environment. A, a good example of this is like your robot starts helping out around the kitchen. It starts by doing some like very obvious things like, okay, there are some dirty dishes, just put them in the dishwasher. Uh, meanwhile, the human's going around and like starting to collect the ingredients for baking a pie. The robot can see this, notice that that's, that's the case and then like go and get out the like mixing bowl and the egg beater and so on um, in order to help. Uh, like this sort of just like seeing what the human is up to and then like immediately starting to help with that is the sort of thing that you can only like this is all happening within a single episode rather than being across episodes the like value learning or reward learning could do it across episodes where like first the robot looks and watches the human uh, act in the environment to make an entire cake from scratch and then the next time when the robot is actually in the environment it goes and helps the human out but in the assistance paradigm, it can do that learning and help out with making the cake within the episode itself, as long as it has enough understanding of how the world works and what data is likely to be uh, in order to actually like deduce with enough confidence that those actions are good to take. When you describe the robot that would ask all these irrelevant questions, I couldn't help, I'm, I'm a parent, I couldn't help but thinking, you know, that's the kind of thing a four-year-old would do, try to ask you every random question yep. that's not relevant right then. And it seems like you're, you're kind of pointing to a more mature type of intelligence. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this is like, like the, the entire paper uh, has this assumption of like, we're going to write down math and then we're going to talk about agents that are optimal for that math. We're not going to bother thinking of, we're not going to think about like, okay, how do we in practice get the optimal thing? We're just like, is the optimal thing actually the thing that we want? Uh, and so one would hope that yes, uh, if we're assuming the actual optimal agent, it should in fact be um, more mature than four-year-olds, one hopes. <laughs> so how do you um, relate, can you relate this assistance paradigm back to standard in inverse RL, what is the relationship between these two paradigms? Yeah, so inverse RL assumes that 
it's an example of the reward learning paradigm. Um, it assumes that you get full demonstrations of the entire task, and then you have, and then you like uh, executed by the human teleoperating the robot. There's like versions of it that don't assume the teleoperation part, but usually that's an assumption. And then given the, you know, teleoperated robot demonstrations of how to do the task, the robot is then supposed to infer what the task actually was and then be able to do it itself in the future without any teleoperation. So without uncertainty, is that true? If the inverse RL paradigm assumes that we're not uncertain in the end? Uh, no, it, it doesn't necessarily assume that. I, I think in many deep IRL algorithms, that does end up being an assumption that they use, but it's not a necessary one. Uh, it can still be uncertain, and then I would plan typically with respect to maximizing the expectation over the reward function, although you could also try to be conservative or risk-sensitive, risk and then you would be max... Uh, you, you'd, you wouldn't be maximizing expected reward. Maybe you'd be maximizing like worst case reward if you wanted to be maximally conservative or something like that, or fifth percentile reward or something like that. Yeah, so so there can be uncertainty, but like the human isn't in the environment and there's this episodic assumption where like the demonstration is one episode and then when the robot is acting, that's a totally different episode. And that also isn't true in the assistance case. You talk about uh, active reward learning and interactive reward learning. Can you help us understand those those two phrases and how they differ? Yeah, so active reward learning is just when uh, the robot has the ability, like in the reward learning paradigm, the robot is given the ability to ask questions um, rather than just getting, just getting to observe what the human is doing. So hopefully that one should be relatively clear. The interactive reward learning setting is, uh, it's mostly just a thing we made up because it was a thing that people often brought up as like, maybe this will work. So we wanted to talk about it and show why it doesn't, doesn't in fact work. Uh, but the idea there is that you alternate between, you still have your two modules. You have one reward learning module and one control module and they don't talk to each other. But instead of like just doing one reward learning thing and then, and then doing control forevermore, you do like, I don't know, you do 10, 10 steps of reward learning, then 10 steps of control, then 10 steps of reward learning, then 10 steps of control. And you like keep uh, iterating between the, the two stages. So why is computational complexity really high for algorithms that try to optimize over assistance? I think you mentioned that here. Yeah, so everything I've talked about has just sort of assumed that the agents are optimal by default. Um, but if you think about it, what the optimal agent has to do is it has to, you know, maintain a probability distribution over all of the possible reward functions that Alice could have, and then update it over time as it sees more and more of Alice's behavior. And as you probably know, full Bayesian updating over a large list of hypotheses uh, is very computationally intractable. Another way of seeing it is that, you know, if you take this assistance paradigm, you can, through a relatively simple reduction, turn it into a partially observable Markov decision process, or POMDP. Uh, the basic idea there is to treat the reward function theta as like some unobserved part of the state. Uh, and then the reward function is whatever that unobserved part of the state would say. 
uh, and then the uh, Alice's behavior is thought of as part of the transition dynamics, which depends on the unobserved part of the state that is the that is theta. Uh, so that that's a rough reduction to how you phrase assistance as a POMDP. Uh, and then POMDPs are known to be very computationally intractable to solve, uh, again, for basically the same reason that I was just saying, which is that like to actually solve them, you need to maintain a Bayesian uh, a probability distribution over all the uh, ways that the unobserved parts of the state could be, and that's just computationally intractable. So do you plan to uh, work on this on this particular line of work further? I think I don't plan to do further direct research on this myself. I still basically agree with the point of the paper, which is, look, when you're building your AI systems, they should be reasoning more they should be reasoning in the way that the assistance paradigm suggests, where there's like this integrated reward learning and control, and they shouldn't be reasoning in the way that the value learning uh, paradigm suggests, where you like first figure out what human values are and then optimize for them. And so I think that point is a pretty important point and will guide how we build AI systems in the future, uh, or it will guide how what we have our AI systems do. And I think I will like continue to push for that point, including like at projects at DeepMind. But I probably won't be doing more like technical research on the math in this paper specifically, because I think I like I've said the things that I wanted to say. Uh, there's still more. Work, there's still plenty of work that one could do, such as like trying to come up with algorithms to directly optimize the maths that we wrote down. Um, but that seems less high leverage to me. Okay, moving to an, uh, the next paper on the utility of learning about humans for human AI coordination. That was Carol et al. with yourself as a co-author. Um, can you tell us the brief uh, general idea here? I think this paper was written in in the wake of some pretty big successes of self-play. Um, so self-play is the algorithm underlying well, self-play are like very similar variants. Are the is the algorithm underlying OpenAI five, uh, which plays Dota, AlphaStar, which plays StarCraft, AlphaGo, and AlphaZero, which play you know Go, chess, Shogi, and so on at a superhuman level. These were like some of the some of the yeah some of the biggest results in AI around that time, and sort of suggested that like self-play was going to be a really big thing. And the point we were making in this paper is that. Self-play works well when you have a zero sum, a two-player zero-sum game, uh, which, which is a like perfectly competitive game, uh, because it's effectively going to cause you to explore the full space of strategies. Because if, if you're like playing against yourself in a competitive game, if there's any flaw in your strategy, then gradient descent is going to like push you in the direction of like exploiting that flaw because you're, you know, you're trying to beat the other copy of you. So you're always driven to get better. Uh, in contrast, in common payoff game, which are the most collaborative games, um, where each agent gets the same payoff no matter what happens, uh, but the payoffs can be different, uh, you don't have this um, similar incentive. Uh, you, you don't have any incentive to be unexploitable. Like, all you want is to come up with some policy that like if played against yourself will get you maximum reward but it doesn't really matter 
if you are if you would like play badly with somebody else like a human like if that were true that wouldn't come up in self-play self-play would be like nah in every single game you play you got the maximum reward there's nothing to do here so there's no force that's like causing you to be robust to all of the possible players that you could have whereas in the competitive game if you weren't robust to all of the players that could possibly arise then you're exploitable in some way and then the gradient descent is incentivized to find that exploit after which you have to become robust to it is there any way to reformulate it so that there is that competitive pressure you can actually do this and so i know you've had michael dennis um and i think also natasha jacques yeah on this podcast before and both of them are doing work that's kind of like this uh with paired right that was yes. jakes and uh and dennis. exactly yeah Oh, the way you do it is you just say, all right, we're going to make the environment a our competitor. The environment's going to like try and like make itself super complicated uh, in a way that defeats uh, whatever policy uh, we were trying to use to coordinate. And so then this makes sure that you have to be robust to whichever environment you find yourself in. So that's like one way to get robustness to, well, it's getting you robustness to environments. It's not necessarily getting robustness to your partners um, when like, if you, for example, you wanted to cooperate with a human, but you could do a similar thing there where you say, we're going to also take the partner agent and we're going to make it be uh, adversarial. Now this doesn't work great if you like literally make it adversarial because sometimes in many like interesting collaborative games, um, like like Overcooked, which is the one that we were studying here, if your partner is an adversary, they can just guarantee that you get minimum reward. It's not. It's often not difficult in this. In Overcooked, you just like stand in front of the station where you deliver the dishes that you've cooked, and you just stand there, and, and that's what the adversary does. And then the agent is just like, well, okay, I can make a soup, but I can never <laughs> deliver it. I guess I never get reward. Uh, so, so it doesn't quite, that like naive, simple approach doesn't quite work. But you can instead, you can like try to have a uh, slightly more sophisticated method where, you know, the instead of being an adversarial partner, it's a partner that's like, trying to keep you on the edge of your abilities and then you like uh, as you uh, and then like once your agent learns how to like do well with the one uh, with your current uh, partner then like the partner tries to make itself a bit harder to do and so on so there there are a few there's a few papers like this that I am currently failing to remember but but there are papers that try to do this sort of thing I think many of them did end up just like following uh, both the self-play work and this paper of ours. So yeah, and basically I think you're right. You can in fact do some clever tricks to make things uh, to make things better and to get around this. It's not quite as simple and elegant as self-play and I don't think the results are quite as good as you get with self-play because it's still not exactly the thing that you want. So now we have a contributed question, which I'm very excited about, from uh, Dr. Natasha Jakes, Senior Research Scientist at Google AI and postdoc at Berkeley. And we were lucky to have Natasha as our guest on episode one. So Natasha, Natasha asks, uh, the most interesting questions are about why interacting with humans is so much harder slash so different than interacting with simulated RL agents. So Rohan, what is it about humans that makes them um, harder and different? Yeah, there are a bunch of factors here. 
Maybe the most obvious one and probably the biggest one in practice is that you can't just put humans in your environment to do like a million steps of gradient descent on, uh, which often we do in fact do with our simulated RL agents. And so like if you could just somehow put a human in the loop uh, in a million uh, for a million episodes, maybe then the resulting agent would in fact just be really good at coordinating with humans. In fact, I might like take out the maybe there and I will I will actually predict that that the resulting agent will be good with humans as long as you had like a, like a reasonable diversity of humans um, in that you had to collaborate with. So my first and biggest answer is you can't get a lot of data from humans in the way that you can get a lot of data from simulated RL agents uh, or equivalently, you can't just put the human uh, into the training loop in the way you can put a simulated RL agent into the training loop. Uh, so that's answer number one. And then there is another answer uh, which seems significantly less important, which is that humans are just not as, are, are, sorry, are significantly more diverse than simulated RL agents typically. Humans don't all act the same way. Uh, even an individual human will act pretty different um, from one episode to the next. Humans will like learn over time. Uh, and so they're not only is their policy like kind of kind of stochastic, but their policy isn't even stationary. The policy changes over time as they learn how to play the game and become better at it. Um, that's another thing that RL, like usually RL assumes that that doesn't, that is not in fact true, that like episodes are drawn IID. Because of this like non-stationarity and stochasticity and diversity, you would imagine that it like, you have to get a much more robust policy, uh, in order to work with humans instead of working with simulated RL agents. And so that, uh, ends up being, uh, that ends up you know, being harder to do. Sometimes people try to like take their simulated RL agents and like make them more stochastic to be more similar to humans. Um, for example, by like maybe taking a random action with some small probability. And I think usually this ends up still looking kind of like artificial and forced when you like look at the resulting behavior such that it still doesn't require that robust a policy in order to collaborate well with those agents. Um, and humans are just like more challenging than that. Okay, let's briefly move to the next paper, evaluating the robustness of collaborative agents that was not at all with yourself as a co-author. Can you give us the, the short version of, of what this paper's about? Like we just talked about how in order to get your agents to work well with humans, they need to be, they need to learn a pretty robust policy. And so one way of measuring how good your agents are at uh, collaborating with humans is, well, you just like have them play with humans and see how well that goes, which is a reasonable thing to do. Um, and people should definitely do it. But this paper proposed a like uh, maybe simpler and more reproducible test that you can run more often, uh, which is just, I mean, it's the basic idea from software engineering. It's just the unit test. Uh, and so it's a very simple idea. The idea is just write some unit tests for the robustness of your agents, write some cases in which you think the like correct action is unambiguously clear in cases that you maybe expect not to come up, uh, during, tra uh, during training, and then just see whether your agent does in fact do the right thing. 
uh, on those inputs. And that can give you, like, if your agent passes all of those tests, that's not a guarantee that it's robust. Uh, but if it fails some of those tests, then you've definitely sound, found some failures of robustness. And I think in practice, uh, the agents that we tested all like failed many tests. I w- yeah, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I think like some of the better agents were getting scores of maybe 70%. Could we kind of say that this is related to the idea of of sampling from environments outside of the train distribution because we think that like in 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 samples that are related to the distribution that the agent would uh, encounter after it's deployed would you would you phrase it that way or is it is it going in different yeah i think that's pretty close i would say all basically everything about that seems correct except the part where you say like uh, and it's probably going to arise in the test distribution. I think usually I just wouldn't even try to like um, check whether or not it would uh, appear in the test distribution. I just because like that's very hard to do. You don't know what's going. Like if you knew how the test distribution was going to look and in what way it was going to be different from the train distribution, then you should just change your train distribution to be the test distribution. But like the fundamental challenge of robustness is usually that you don't know what your test distribution is going to look like. So I would say it's more like we try to deliberately in, uh, find situations that are outside the training situation, but where a human would agree that there's like one un- unambiguously correct answer um, and test it in those cases. Like maybe this will lead us to be too conservative because like actually the test was in a state that will never actually come up in the test distribution. But given that we it seems very hard to know that. I think um, it's still a good idea to be running these tests and to take failures fairly seriously. And this paper mentions three types of robustness. Can you um, briefly touch on on the three types? Yeah. So this is basically a categorization that we found helpful in generating the tests. uh, And it's uh, somewhat specific to reinforcement learning agents. So the three types were state robustness, which is um, a case where like, Basically, these are test cases in which the main thing that you changed is the state in which the agent is operating. Then there's agent robustness, which is uh, when one of the other agents in the environment uh, exhibits some behavior that's like uh, unusual and not what you expected. And then that can further be uh, decomposed into two types is agent robustness without memory where uh, even like where the the test doesn't require the AI system to have any memory. There's like a correct action that seems determinable even if the AI system doesn't have memory. Uh, so this might be what you want to use if you uh, for some reason are using uh, an MLP or a CNN as your architecture. And then there's agent robustness with memory, uh, which is where the distribution shift happens from uh, an uh, partner agent in the environment doing something that where you have to actually like look at the behavior over time, notice that uh, something is violating what what you expected during training, and then take some corrective action as a result. Uh, so there, you need memory in order to understand um, how the partner agent is doing something that wasn't what you expected. And then 
I guess when we're dealing with a high dimensional state, there's just a ridiculous number of permutations and situations. And we've seen in the past that, um, that deep learning especially can be really sensitive to small, seemingly meaningless changes in this high dimensional state. So how do we, how, how could we possibly think about scaling this up to a point where uh, we don't have to test every single thing? I think that basically this particular approach, you mostly just shouldn't try to scale up in this way. It's more meant to be a like first quick sanity check that is already quite hard to pass uh, for current systems. We're talking scores like 70%. I think once you get to like scores like 95, 99%, uh, then it's like, okay, that's the point to like start thinking about scaling up. But like, suppose we got there. Uh, what do we then do? I don't think we really want to scale up the like the specific process of humans think of tests, humans write down tests. Uh, then we like run those on the AI system. I think at that point, uh, we want to migrate to a more like alignment flavored, uh, viewpoint, which I think we were going to talk about in the near future anyway. Uh, but to give a, give some advance, uh, to talk about that a little bit in advance, I think once we like scale up, we want to try and find cases where the AI system does something bad that it knew was bad. It knew that it wasn't the thing that its designers intended. And the reason that this allows you to scale up is because now you can like go and inspect the AI system and try to find facts that it knows and like leverage those in order to create your test cases. And one hopes that the set of things that the AI knows is still plausibly a very large space, but hopefully not an exponentially growing space the way the state space is. And the intuition for why this is okay is that like, yes, the AI system might end up may end up having accidents and that wouldn't be caught if we were only looking for cases where the AI system made a mistake that it knew was a mistake. But like usually those things aren't that bad. Uh, they can be if your AI system is like in a nuclear power plant, for example, or uh, in some like uh, in a weapon system, perhaps. But like in many cases, it's not actually that bad for your AI system to make an accidental error. The really bad errors are the ones where the AI system is like intentionally making an error uh, or making something that is bad from the perspective of the designers. Those are those are like really bad situations and you don't want to get into them. And so I'm most interested in like thinking of like how we can avoid that. Uh, and so then you can like try to leverage the agent's knowledge to construct inputs that you can then test the AI system on. So this is a great segue to the alignment section. Um, so how do you define uh, alignment in AI? Maybe I will give you two definitions uh, that are like slightly different, but mostly the same. So one is that an AI system is misaligned, so not aligned, uh, if it takes actions that it knew uh, were against the wishes of its designers. That's basically the definition that I was just giving earlier. Uh, a different, more positive definition of AI alignment is, an, is that an AI system is aligned if it is trying to do what it's... Uh, designers intended for it to do. And is there some um, agreed upon taxonomy of like top level topics in alignment? Um, like how does it relate to uh, concepts like AI safety and 
human feedback, the different things that we talked about today? How do we, how would we uh, arrange these in a kind of high level? There is definitely not a canonical taxonomy of topics. There's not even a canonical definition. So like the one I gave doesn't include the problem, for example, of how you resolve disagreements between humans on what the AI system should do. It just says, all right, there's some designers. They wanted something. That's what the AI system is supposed to be doing. Uh, and it doesn't talk about like, all right, the process by which those designers decide what the AI system intends to do. That's like not, not a part of the problem as I'm defining it. It's obviously still an important problem, just like not part of this definition. Uh, as I gave it, but other people would say, no, that's a bad definition. You should include that problem. So there's not even a canonical definition. So I think I will just give you maybe my taxonomy of alignment topics. So in terms of how alignment relates to AI safety, uh, there's this sort of general big picture question of like, how do we make or will AI be beneficial for humanity? which you might call AI safety or AI beneficialness or something. And then that you can break down into a few possible uh, possible categories. I quite like the, uh, I'm gonna forget where this, where, I, where this taxonomy comes from, but I like the taxonomy into accidents, misuse, and structural risks. So accidents are exactly what they sound like. Accidents happen when an AI system does something bad and nobody intended for that the AI system to do that thing. Uh, misuse also exactly what it sounds like. It's when it's when somebody gets an AI system to do something, and that some the thing that it got the AI system to do was something that we didn't actually want. So think of like terrorists um, using AI systems um, to like assassinate people. Uh, and then structural risks are maybe less obvious than the previous two. But structural risks happen when, you know, if as we infuse AI systems into our economy, do any new sorts of problems arise? Do we get into like races to the bottom on safety? Do we get to, do we have like a whole bunch of increased economic competition that causes us to sacrifice many, to sacrifice many of our values in the name of productivity? Uh, stuff like that. So that's like one starting categorization, accidents, misuse, structural risk. And within accidents, you can have, uh, you can then further separate into uh, accidents where the AI system knew that the thing that it was doing was bad, and accidents where the AI system didn't know that the thing that it was doing was bad. And the first one is AI alignment, according to my definition, which again is not a canonical definition. I think it's maybe the most common definition, but it's like not canonical. So that was like how alignment relates to AI safety. And then like, how does the stuff we've been talking about today relate to alignment? Again, people will disagree with me on this, but according to me, the way to build aligned AI systems in the sense of AI systems that don't make, take bad actions that they knew were bad is that you use a lot of human feedback to train your AI system to where like the human feedback, you know, it rewards the AI system when it does things that the humans want and uh, punishes the AI system when the AI system does things that the human doesn't want. This doesn't solve the entire problem. You all, you basically then just want to like make your human, the, the people providing your feedback as powerful, as 
make them as competent as possible. So maybe you could do some interpretability with the model that you're training um, in order to like understand how exactly it's like reasoning, how it's making decisions. You can then feed that uh, information to the humans who are providing feedback and thus th this can then maybe allow them to uh, not just select AI systems that get the right outcomes, but now they can select AI systems that get the right outcomes for the right reasons, and that can help you get more robustness. Uh, you could imagine that you have some other AI systems that are in charge of like finding new hypothetical inputs on which the AI system that you're training takes a bad action. And so like this AI system is like, here's this hypothetical input, uh, here's this input on which your AI system's doing a bad thing. And then the humans are like, oh, that's bad. Let's put it in the training data set um, and give good feedback on it and so on. So then I think basalt would be maybe the most obviously connected here where it was about how do you just train anything with human feedback, which is obviously a core thing I've been talking about in this plan. Um, preferences implicit in the state of the world. It's less clear how that relates here. I think that paper makes more sense in a plan that's more like traditional value alignment where your AI system maintain uh, like has an explicit distribution over data that it's updating via evidence. So I think that one is less relevant to this to the to this description. The benefits of assistance paper is I think primarily a statement about what the AI system should do. And so like what we want our human feedback providers to be doing is to be seeing, hey, is this AI system like thinking about what uh, what its users will want? Um, if it's uncertain about what the users will want, does it like ask for clarification? Or does it just like guess? Um, we probably wanted to ask for clarification rather than guessing if it's a sufficiently important thing. Uh, but if it's like some probably insignificant thing, then it's like fine if it can guess. And so through the human feedback that you can then like train a system that's being very assistive. The overcooked papers uh, on the ut utility of learning about uh, learning about humans for human AI coordination. Uh, that one is, I think, not that relevant to this plan unless you happen to be building an AI system that is playing a collaborative game. The evaluating the robustness paper is uh, more relevant in that like part of the thing that these human feedback providers are going to be doing is to like be constructing these hypothetical uh, be constructing inputs on which the AI system, uh, behaves badly and then training the AI system not to behave badly on those inputs. Uh, so in that sense, it's uh, it also fits into this um, overall story. Cool. Okay. Can you mention uh, a bit about your alignment newsletter? Um, like, what is, what? How do you how do you define that newsletter and and how did you how did you start that and what's happening with the newsletter now? The alignment newsletter is supposed to be a weekly newsletter that I write that summarizes uh, just recent content relevant to AI alignment. It has not been uh, very weekly in the last couple of months because I have been busy, but I do intend to go back to making it a weekly newsletter. It, I mean, the origin story is kind of funny. It was just, we, this was while I was a PhD student at the Center for Human Compatible AI at UC Berkeley. Uh, we were like just discussing that like there were a lot of papers that were coming out all the time 
uh, as people will probably be familiar with, and it was hard to keep track of them all. Um, and so someone suggested that, hey, maybe we should have a rotation of people who just uh, search for all of the new papers that have arrived in the past week and just send an email out to everyone, just like list giving links to those papers so other people don't have to do the search themselves. And I said like, look, I, you know, I just do this every week anyway. I, I'm just happy to take on this job. Sending, an, uh, sending one email with a bunch of links is not a hard. Uh, we don't need to have this rotation of people. Um, so I did that internally to Chai. Uh, then like, you know, a couple of weeks later, I like added a sentence that was telling people, hey, this is what, this is like the topic. Um, here is, you know, maybe you should read it if you are interested in X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so that happened for a while. And then I think I started writing slightly more extensive summaries so that people didn't have to read the paper uh, unless it was something they were particularly interested in. Uh, and like around that point, people were like, this is actually quite useful. You should make it public. Uh, and then I like tested it a bit more, um, maybe for another like three to four weeks internally to try. And then I, and, and after that, I released it publicly. Uh, it still did go under a fair amount of improvement. I think maybe after like 10 to 15 newsletters was when it felt more stable. Yeah. And now it's like, apart from the fact that I've been too busy to do it recently, it's been pretty stable for the last, I don't know, two years or so. Cool. Well, uh, to the audience, I highly recommend the newsletter. And uh, like I mentioned, you know, when I first met you and and heard about your alignment newsletter early on, at that point, I really wasn't, um, I didn't really appreciate the um, the importance of alignment uh, issues. And, and I got to say that really changed for me when I read uh, the book Human Compatible by Professor Stuart Russell, who I gather is your one of your PhD advisors. Yep. And so that book uh, really helped me appreciate the importance of alignment related stuff. And it was part of the reason that I, that I sought, sought you out to interview you. So I, I'm happy to recommend that, uh, plug that book to, to the audience. Uh, Professor Russell's awesome and it's a very well-written book and, uh, and full of great insight. Yep. I also strongly recommend this book. And since we're on the topic of the alignment newsletter, you can read my summary of, uh, Stuart Russell's book in order to get a sense of what it talks about, uh, before you actually make the commitment of actually reading the entire book. Um, so you can find that on my website under uh, Alignment Newsletter. There's a list of past issues. I think this was Newsletter Edition 69. Not totally sure. You can check that. And what was your website again? Uh, it's just my first name and last name, rohanshah.com. Okay, cool. I highly recommend doing that um, to the audience. And so I wanted to ask you about how, you know, how alignment work is done. So a common pattern that, you know, we might be familiar with in, in many ML papers is to show a new method and show some experiments. Um, but is alignment, uh, is work in alignment fundamentally different? Like what does the work uh, entail in, in alignment? Is, is there a lot of thought experiments or or how would you describe that? Uh, there's a big variety of things. So some alignment work um, is in fact pretty similar to uh, existing uh, to, to typical ML work. Um, so for example, there's a lot of alignment work that's like, can we make human feedback algorithms better? Uh, and you know, you start with some baseline and some task or environment in which you want to get an AI system to do something. 
and then you like try to improve upon the baseline using some ideas that you thought about uh and like you know maybe it's somewhat different because you're using human feedback whereas typical ml uh, ml research doesn't involve human feedback but that's not that big a difference it's still like mostly the same skills uh so that's probably the kind that's closest to existing ml research there's also like a lot of interpretability work which again is just like working with actual machine learning models and trying to figure out what the heck they're doing also seems pretty it's like not the same thing as like get a better performance on this task but it's still like pretty similar to uh, the general field to like some parts of the of machine learning so that's like one kind one type of alignment research and then there's you know on the complete other side there is a bunch of stuff where you're like where you think very abstractly about what future ai systems are going to look like so like maybe you're like all right maybe you think about how some story by which you might by which agi might arise like we run such and such algorithm maybe with such some improvements in the arch- in various architectures with like such and such data and you get a and it turns out you can get agi out of this uh then you maybe like think in this hypothetical okay uh does this agi end up getting misaligned if so how how does it get misaligned if yes um then you tell that story and you're like, okay, now I have a story of like how the uh, AGI system was misaligned. What would I need to do in order to like prevent this from happening? Um, so you can do the like pretty elaborate uh, conceptual thought experiments. I think these are usually good as a way of ensuring that the things that you're working on are actually useful. I think there are a few people who do these sorts of conceptual arguments almost always and uh, do them well such that I'm like, yeah, this the, the stuff they're producing I think is probably going to matter in the future. But I think it's also very easy to end up not very grounded in what's actually going to happen such that you end up saying things that won't actually be true in the future and could notably like some somewhat there is some reasonably easy to find argument today that could convince you that the things you're saying are like not going to matter in the future so it's like pretty hard to do this research because of the lack of actual empirical feedback loops but i don't think it is doomed um i think people do in fact get um some interesting results out of this and often the results out of this that the the best results out of this line of work uh usually seem better to me than the results that we get out out of the empirical line of work so you mentioned in your newsletter, and then there's an alignment forum. If I understand that, that's what that was sprang out of less wrong. Is that is that right? I don't know if I would say it sprang out of less wrong. It was meant to be at least somewhat separate from it, but it's definitely very. It's definitely affiliated with less wrong, and like everything on it gets cross posted to less wrong. And so these are pretty advanced resources. I mean, from my point of view, um, but to the audience who maybe is just getting started with these ideas, can you recommend, uh, you know, a couple of resources that might be good for them to get uh, like an on ramp for them? Um, I guess including the, the human compatible, but anything else you'd want to mention? Yeah. So human compatible is a pretty good suggestion. Um, there are other books as well. Um, so super intelligence is more on the philosophy side. Uh, the alignment problem by Brian Christian is less on the like uh, has a little bit less on like what what might solutions look like but has more of the like intellectual history behind how how these concerns started arising on life 3.0 by max tegmark i don't remember 
how much it talks about alignment. I assume it does a decent amount, uh, but that's that's another option. Apart from books, I think, so the alignment forum has some um, sequences of blog posts that are that requ- that don't require quite as much um technical depth so for example it's got the value learning sequence which i well which i half wrote half curated other people's posts um so i think that's a good introduction to some of the ideas in alignment uh there's the embedded agency sequence also on the alignment forum and the iterated amplification sequence on the alignment forum Oh, there's the there's an AGI safety fundamentals course. I think you can just Google it. It has a publicly available curriculum, I believe. I think really ignore all the other suggestions. Look at that curriculum and then read things on there is probably actually my advice. Have you seen any uh, depictions of, of alignment issues in science fiction or uh, these these ideas come up for you when you when you watch or read read sci-fi they definitely come up to some extent i think there are many ways in which the depictions aren't realistic but like they do come up or i guess even outside or just uh even mythology like the the, the whole midas touch thing seems like a perfect example of a misalignment yeah the king midas example is is a good example I the do monkey's like paw it. yeah yeah, those are good examples. Yeah, that's true. If you if you expand to include mythology in general, I feel like it's probably everywhere. Um, especially if you include things like you asked for something and got what you literally asked for, but not what you actually meant. That's really is common, a, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, in stories. Yeah, I mean, we've got, like, I could just take any story about genies and probably this will feature. <laughs> Um, so they really started the uh, alignment uh, literature back then, I guess, thousands of years old. The problem of there are two people, one person wants the other person to do something. It's just like a very important fundamental problem that you need to deal with. There's like tons of stuff also in economics about this, where it's the principal agent problem. And like the AI alignment problem is not literally the same thing. In the principal agent problem, you assume that the agent ha- already has some motivation some utility function and you're like trying to incentivize them to do the things that you want. Whereas in AI alignment, you get to build the agent that you're delegating to. And so you have more control over it. So there are differences, but like fundamentally the like entity A wants entity B to do something for entity A is like just a super common pattern that human society has thought about a lot. So we have some more contributing questions. Uh, this mm-hmm. is one from Nathan Lambert, a PhD student at UC Berkeley doing research on robot learning. And uh, Nathan was our guest for episode 19. So Nathan says, a lot of AI alignment and AGI safety work happens on blog posts and forums. Uh, what's the right manner to draw more attention from the academic community? Any comment on that? I think, I think that this is basically a reasonable strategy where like by by doing this work on blog posts and forums people can move a lot faster uh like ml is pretty good in that uh like relative to other academic fields you know it doesn't take years to publish your paper it only takes months to publish your paper uh but blog posts and forums it can be days to talk about your ideas um so you can move a lot 
faster if you're trusting in everyone's ability to like understand which work is good um, and what to build on. Uh, and so that, that's like, I think the main benefit of blog posts and forums. But then as a result, anyone who isn't an expert correctly doesn't end up reading the blog posts and forums because there's not, it, it's a little hard if you're not an expert to extract the signal and ignore the noise. So I think then there's like a s separate group of people and not, sorry, they're not a separate group, but there's a group of people who then takes a bunch of these ideas and then tries and then converts them into like more rigorous uh, and correct and academically presented um, ideas in, in papers. And that's the thing that you can like uh, show to the academic community in order to draw more attention. In fact, we've just been working on a project along these lines at DeepMind, which hopefully will release soon, talking about the risks from uh, inner misalignment. So yeah, I think roughly my story is you figure out conceptually what you want to do via the blog posts and forums, and then you like make it rigorous and have experiments and like demonstrate things with um, actual examples instead of hypothetical ones uh, in the format of an academic paper. And that's how you then like make it um, credible enough and convincing enough to draw attention from the academic community. Great. And then Taylor Killian asks, Taylor is a PhD student at U of T and the Vector Institute. Taylor was our guest for episode 13. And Taylor asks, how can we approach the alignment problem when faced with heterogeneous behavior from possibly many human actors? I think under my interpretation of this question is that you know, humans sometimes disagree on what things to value and similarly disagree on what behaviors they they exhibit and want the AI to exhibit. Um, so how do you get the AI to decide on one set of values or one set of behaviors? And as I talked about a little bit before, I mostly just take this question and like it is outside of the scope of the things that I usually think about. I'm usually just, I'm usually thinking about the designers have something in mind that they want the AI system to do. Did the AI system actually do, do that thing? Or at least did it, is it trying to do that thing? I do think that this problem is in fact an important problem, but I think what you, the, the way, what your solution, like your solutions are probably going to be more like political um, or like societal rather than technical where you know, you have to negotiate with other people to figure out what exactly you want your AI systems to be doing. And then you like take that, take that like simple spec and you hand it off to the AI designers. And then the AI designers are like, all right, now we will make an AI system with the spec. Yeah. So, so I would say it's like, yeah, there's a separate problem of like how to go from human society to something that we can put inside of an AI. This is like the domain of a significant portion of social science. Uh, and it has technical aspects too. So like social choice theory, for example, I think has at least some technical people trying to do uh, mechanism design to, to solve these problems. And that seems great. And people should do that. It's a good problem to solve. Um, it's unfortunately not one I have thought about very much. But I do feel pretty strongly about the factorization into one part of 
you know, one problem, which is like figure out what exactly you want to put into the AI system. And then the other part of the problem, which I call the alignment problem, which is then how do you take that thing that you want to put into the AI system and actually put it into the AI system. Okay, cool. And Taylor also asks, how do we best handle bias when learning from human expert demonstrations? This is a good question. And I would say is an open question in, in the field. So I don't have a great answer to it. But some approaches that people have taken, one simple thing is to get a uh, get demonstration from a wide variety of humans and hope that to, to the extent that they're making mistakes, some of those mistakes will cancel out. You can invest additional effort, like you get a bunch of demonstrations and then you invest a lot of effort into evaluating the quality of each of those demonstrations. And then you can like label each demonstration with like how, how high quality it is. And then you can design an algorithm that like takes the quality into account when learning. Or, I mean, the most simple thing is you just like discard everything that's too low quality and only keep the high quality ones. But uh, there are some algorithms that have been proposed that can make use of the low quality ones while still trying to get to the performance of the high quality ones. Another approach that people have um, tried to take is to like try and guess what sorts of biases um, are present and then try to build algorithms that correct for those biases. Uh, so in fact, one of my older papers looks into an approach uh, of this form. I think I, like we did get results that were better than the baseline, but I don't think it was all that promising. Uh, so I mostly did not continue working on that approach. So it just seems kind of hard to like know exactly which biases uh, are going to happen and to then correct for all of them. All right, so those are a few thoughts on how you can try to handle bias. I don't think we know the best way to do it yet. Cool. Thanks so much uh, to Taylor and Nathan and Natasha for contributing questions. Um, you can also contribute questions to our next uh, interviews uh, if you show up on our Twitter at TalkRL Podcast. So we're just about wrapping up here. A uh, few more questions for you today, Rohan. What would you say is the holy grail for your line of research? I think the holy grail is to have a procedure for training AI systems at particular tasks um, where, we can where we can apply arbitrary human understandable constraints to how the AI system achieves those tasks. So for example, we can be like, we can build an AI assistant that schedules your meetings, but, uh, and, sh uh, and like, but ensures that it's always very respectful when it's talking to other people in order to schedule your emails and is never like, you know, discriminating based on sex or something like that. Or you can like build an agent that plays Minecraft and you can just deploy it on an entirely new multiplayer server that includes both humans and AI systems. Yeah, and then you can say, hey, you should just go help such and such player with whatever it is they want to do. And the agent just does that and it like abides by the norms on that uh, on the multiplayer server, server that it joined. Or you can build a recommender system that's just optimizing for what humans think uh, is good for recommender systems to be doing while uh, rather than optimizing for, say, engagement, if we think that engagement is a bad thing to be optimizing for. So how do you see your, uh, your research career plan? Um, do you have a clear roadmap in mind or are you uh, doing a lot of exploration as you go? I think I feel more like there's 
maybe I wouldn't call it a roadmap exactly, but there's a clear plan. Uh, and the plan is, we talked a bit, a bit about it earlier. The plan is roughly train models using human feedback and then like empower the, the humans providing the feedback as much as you can. Um, ideally so that they can know everything that the model knows and select the models that are getting the right outcomes for the right reasons. I'd say like, that's the plan. That's like an ideal to which we aspire. Uh, we will probably not actually reach it. Knowing everything that the model knows is a pretty high bar and probably we won't get to it. But there are like a bunch of tricks that we can do that get us closer and closer to it. And the closer we get to it, the better, the better we're doing. Um, and so I'm like, let us find more and more of those tricks, find which ones are the best, see how like cost efficient, how costly they are and so on. Um, and ideally this just leads to our, to an, a significant improvement in our ability to do these things over time. Um, I, I will say though that it took me several years to get to this point. Like, most of the uh, most of the previous years of my career have in fact been a significant amount of exploration, uh, which is part of why like not all of the papers uh, that we've talked about so far really fit into the story. Is there anything else uh, you want to mention to our audience today, Rohan? Yeah. Um, so I am probably going to start a hiring round at DeepMind for my own team. Um, probably sometime in the next month from the time of recording. Uh, today is March 22nd. So yeah, please do apply if you're interested in working on AI alignment. Great. Dr. Rohan Shah, this has been an absolute pleasure and, and a total honor, by the way. I want to thank you for on behalf of myself and, and our, our audience. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was really fun to actually go through all of these papers. Uh, in a single session. I don't think I've ever done that before.